In the 20th century, Mo Berg played for multiple professional baseball teams, worked as an intelligence agent for the United States government, and got kicked out of his brother's house. This episode of Footnoting History is all about the catcher-turned-spy-turned-perpetual house guest. Hey everyone, Christine here with some baseball and espionage history. I'm a lifelong massive baseball fan, specifically of the New York Mets, so obviously I am really excited to do an episode that touches on baseball history. Before I dive into Mo's life, though, I want to make sure everyone knows that if you prefer a captioned version of this episode, you can either visit footnotinghistory.com for the link or search for us on YouTube and it should come right up. That way, you can see what I'm saying on your screen. Now, Mo Berg has been a person of public interest since his own lifetime, but perhaps no one has investigated his life more, or at least published as thorough a biography of him, as Nicholas Davidoff. I want to tip my hat to him right at the start, because although I consulted a lot of sources, all listed under further reading on our website, without his work, I would simply not have an episode today. So let's get to the subject at hand. Morris Berg, known as Mo, was born on March 2nd, 1902, while his family was living on 121st Street in Manhattan, New York. His father Bernard and mother Rose were immigrants who came to the United States from the Ukraine in the 1890s. Aside from Mo, they had two other children, Samuel and Ethel. In the U.S., Mo's father put himself through pharmaceutical college, then moved the family to Newark, New Jersey when Mo was still young because he'd bought a pharmacy there. Mo's family was Jewish, but they were non-practicing, and indeed, his father appears to have intentionally kept the family away from the more heavily Jewish areas of the city. They were not encouraged to embrace religion, but they were encouraged in their studies. Mo's father in particular stressed that his children should embrace their education because he had big ambitions for them. Mo took to education from the very beginning, always excelling at school and enjoying learning, a love that would be with him for his entire life and be the crux of his reputation. Mo also fostered another love in his childhood, though this one only angered his father. It was, as you probably guessed, baseball. Mo played whenever he could because it made him happy. He played with his brother. He played with the local patrolman. Heck, he even played on the Roseville Methodist Episcopal Church baseball team and his high school team. I suppose I should pause here for anyone who doesn't know much about baseball. Here is your extremely simplified explanation. In baseball, two teams face off to see who can get the highest number of runs, never call them points or anything else. Each team uses nine players at a time, alternating between having all of them out in the field or trying to score. A pitcher throws a ball and a member of the opposite team tries to hit it with a bat and make his way around the bases, of which there are four, forming a shape that is known as the baseball diamond. Anytime a player makes it completely around the bases and back to where they started, a run is scored. It is a game that is as much mental and strategic as it is physically athletic, which I'm sure contributed to why Mo loved it so much. In 1918, Mo graduated from high school at the age of 16. After a very brief stopover as a student in New York University, he transferred to Princeton University. Princeton was an up-and-down time for Mo. He adored languages, which were his major, and studied seven of them, Latin, Greek, Spanish, Italian, French, and Sanskrit. 
He also played for the Princeton baseball team as a shortstop, a player whose field position is between second and third base. The team was quite successful, and Moe's time on it would be his ticket to becoming a professional player. But Princeton also had its downside. The university was filled with the children of wealthy Protestants, and they were often very open with their anti-Semitism. The most well-known incident of discrimination from Moe's time at Princeton is that when he was asked to join one of the school's dining clubs, he was told that he would only be accepted if he did not ask for other Jewish students to also be admitted. As you can imagine, he turned down the invitation. When he graduated in 1923, he was offered a teaching post, but turned it down and went into baseball. Two big league New York teams had their eyes on Mo, who was by now a strapping man just over six feet tall, the Brooklyn Robins and the New York Giants. He chose to play for the Robins. Two main things can be said about Moe's baseball career. He was a player for a pretty long time, and he was overall rather mediocre at it. He was better as a fielder than a hitter. His lifetime batting average was .243, which amounts to getting a hit 24.3% of the times it was his turn at bat. .243 is not a number that's necessarily going to get you left out of the game, but it's also not one that's going to make you any type of an all-star. Over the course of his lengthy career, he played for the aforementioned Brooklyn Robins in Chicago on the White Sox, Cleveland, Washington on the Senators, and ultimately in Boston with the Red Sox. His father never went to see him play. Although we know he started off as a shortstop in college, he didn't stay at that position. When he was on the White Sox in 1927, he was doing more sitting than playing. When all three of the team's catchers got hurt, Moe was called from the bench to try out the new position. He never looked back. He had an eye and mind for the game and took to the position perhaps more than was anticipated. As a catcher, he was the only player with a view of the entire field, and he was in charge of communicating with the pitcher to try and navigate ways to prevent the other team from making good contact with the ball. It was a thinking man's position, and it suited him. Years later, he wrote a fascinating piece called Pitchers and Catchers for Atlantic Monthly. If you have any interest in baseball, I consider it a must-read. The link to it can be found on our website. Even after a knee injury sustained on the field put him in the hospital, he continued in the profession, though it meant the potential he once had would never be realized, and he spent significantly more time on the bench than playing for the rest of his career. Baseball, though, was not the only thing he was doing. After his first season as a professional player, he went to Paris and took a slew of classes, mostly in languages. Later, he enrolled in law school at Columbia University in New York. This caused him to skip spring training with his team because of classes and obligations to school, much to the chagrin of upper management. Despite the conflicts, he did graduate and become a lawyer while still being a professional baseball player though I must point out that he only spent a brief period of time ever actually working for a law firm. His father wanted him to be a lawyer, and so a lawyer he became. Technically, anyway. To the baseball community, he was an enigma. He had acquaintances, but not very many true friends, if any at all. He was called Professor Berg because of his reputation for scholarly endeavors, and the press loved to write about him. For his part, he appears to have enjoyed talking to the press, and let them have their way with the Professor Berg persona they created, but he never gave away much about himself. His guarded nature was perhaps most put on public display when he made multiple appearances on a radio quiz show, 
but refused to engage in any conversation or banter outside of the question answering. He was someone who could spin you a good story about the things he'd seen or places he'd gone, but he never let you get beneath the surface. In addition to being known for his love of education, he had a number of idiosyncrasies that led people to label him eccentric. Over time, he established a daily personal uniform. This involved a white dress shirt with a black tie and dark gray suit, black shoes, and the occasional gray fedora. For the rest of his life, he varied from it only when necessary. Another routine for him was bathing, which he did two to three times a day. He also developed a passion for newspapers. No matter where he was or what he was doing, he always possessed many, many newspapers. He didn't let anyone touch them until he had read them and was regularly seen with his stack of papers, be it at the ballpark or elsewhere. But I hear you thinking, what does that have to do with espionage? So let's get to that. Moe's first spy-adjacent activity was completely self-imposed. In 1932 and 1934, he made trips to Japan as part of a group of professional baseball players recruited to be ambassadors of the sport. At this point, although political relations between the U.S. and Japan were strained, the full-blown state of war between the two was still in the future. The first time Mo went, they toured Japanese universities giving lectures and working with Japanese players who played the same positions as them. He followed this with a lengthy trip around Asia that looped back to the Middle East, Northern Africa, and then was in Berlin in 1933, around the time Hitler became chancellor. In 1934, he returned to Japan with a group of players that included the likes of Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig. This time, they played exhibition games against Japanese players, but for one game, Mo was absent. He claimed to be ill, but really he ducked away from the game and went to Tokyo. There, he changed into Japanese-style clothing and entered a hospital where he claimed to be visiting a diplomat's daughter. Instead of doing that, he made his way to the roof where he took videos of Tokyo, something which the Japanese authorities would not have approved of in a period of increased distrust of Americans. Then he returned to the team like nothing ever happened. It was a strange thing for him to do, and no one quite knows for sure what his motivation was for this stunt but to me it sounds like someone who would want to become an intelligence officer. In fact, he later showed this footage to intelligence officers, but any statement about them being influential, even minimally, would be unfounded. His official foray into the intelligence community came as his baseball career was ending. In 1940, Mo moved to become a coach for the Red Sox, but it didn't take long for him to step away from that. As World War II amped up, Mo's desire to play a part in it increased. In December of 1941, the Japanese attack on the U.S. naval base at Pearl Harbor brought the United States into World War II, and this only spiked Berg's desire to join in the war effort. So it was that, thanks to the help of a diplomat contact he had, he began to work for the Office of Inter-American Affairs. The OIAA was headed by Nelson Rockefeller and dealt largely with U.S. relations with Central and South America. In 1942, Mo joined the OIAA and traveled around places like Panama, Peru, Brazil, Colombia, and Costa Rica, visiting with American troops and sending word back to his superiors about morale, health, and the soldiers' needs. This meant that he suggested the soldiers be given things like radios and athletic equipment, and also reported back a lack of condoms and outbreaks of venereal disease. But this job, however helpful it might have been to the troops, 
was not as critical to the current war as he wanted. So eventually he resigned from the OIAA and applied to a different government agency, the Office of Strategic Services, or the OSS, which specialized in wartime intelligence. Once Mo got accepted into the OSS, he entered the most secretive and intense period of his life. His big assignment was to go to Europe, speak to Italian scientists, and not only try to get them to defect to the United States, but also find out what they knew about Germany trying to develop nuclear weapons, especially an atom bomb. Mo's time in the OSS was largely freewheeling. He had a definite objective, but as long as he got it done, there was little restricting of his movements and a lot less defined procedure than you might expect. At times, his superior officers didn't even know where he was. And while he definitely did work, he also lived large, enjoying fancy hotels, fancier restaurants, and having the OSS pay for it. He visited with dozens of scientists over a period of months, even getting Italian aeronautical engineer Antonio Ferri to move to the United States. And he continued investigating German progress on an atomic bomb. Then, in 1944, he got handed an even bigger job. Physicist Werner Heisenberg had been determined by Mo's superiors to be the most likely person to head up the possible German project. But as of yet, no one had been able to definitively determine that there even was a German atomic program, and some doubted its existence. So Mo was given a task. Heisenberg was scheduled to give a talk in Zurich, Switzerland, and he had to attend. While there, he was to listen to the lecture and... If he heard anything that made him certain the threat of a German atomic weapon was real, he was to shoot Heisenberg on the spot. Then, if needed, he could kill himself with a lethal dose of cyanide. In December, Mo attended the lecture. It was no doubt an extremely high adrenaline time, but nothing happened. Mo decided that there was nothing said or done that indicated Heisenberg was working on atomic weapons, let alone close to completing one. Heisenberg lived and Mo made the correct call. Germany never developed an atomic bomb. Never again would Mo be in such a high-pressure espionage situation. In 1945, Hitler died. The United States ended up being the country to utilize the devastating power of atomic bombs, and the war ended. As much as the end of the war was a good thing, people like Mo, who felt an extreme sense of purpose working covertly during it, felt unmoored when all was done and it was time to go home, in Mo's case to Newark, which didn't excite him. Following a brief return to the U.S., Mo was part of an entourage for an OSS trip around Western Europe. Later, he joined others on a foray into Soviet-controlled East Berlin to look into Soviets bribing and or forcing German scientists to go to the USSR, and then he bopped around Europe doing things like going skiing. But around him, things were changing. U.S. President Truman dissolved the OSS, having it finish its business as the Strategic Services Unit. Ultimately, it would basically be absorbed into a new agency called the Central Intelligence Agency, or CIA, in 1947. Mo didn't gel well with any of these new versions of American intelligence. When the Strategic Service Unit called him back to the United States and questioned him on his spending, he wasn't pleased. He chafed under the new, tighter leash that was put on agents in the post-OSS world, and he resigned. Later, he attempted to work for the CIA, 
but his need for freedom and free spending meant that the relationship was not a positive one and it didn't get off the ground for long, though he had no problem allowing people to think he was still tied to the CIA. In 1946, after a glowing application was submitted by one of his superiors, he was awarded the Medal of Freedom. The citation from it says that he, quote, rendered exceptionally meritorious service of high value to the war effort, end quote. But Mo rejected it. It wasn't until after he died that his sister accepted it on his behalf and donated it to the Baseball Hall of Fame. Post-war, Mo learned that an investment he'd made with a friend in a stationery and film company went south. There was major debt and he was on the line for it. He refused to get any form of real paying job and for years ignored the debt situation until he was able to negotiate a settlement partly backed by money borrowed from a friend and likely never repaid. Mo made it a habit to never repay people, and he was also very skilled at getting others to cover his costs. His life story is filled with acquaintances allowing him to stay in their homes, sometimes for long periods, and them paying for all of his meals and occasionally buying him new suits. Possibly the most extreme example of this is that he convinced a doctor acquaintance to remove his hernia for free. Moe's primary residence was technically with his brother Sam, who was a doctor in Newark, but he would come and go like the wind, showing up one week in Boston, then another in New York, and yet another in California. Wherever he went, it was the same thing. He'd call up someone he knew, accept their offer to stay with them, arrive with his newspapers and standard uniform, and then eventually disappear off to somewhere else. He never sustained a romantic relationship for the long term. The closest he came was before the war when he lived with a woman named Estella, who was by all accounts beautiful, intelligent, and cultured. Their time together ended when Mo went to Europe and she ultimately gave up on him and married someone else. Some suggested that Mo might have been gay, bisexual, or even unsure of his orientation. But the only people we know for a fact he had physical relationships with are women, and multiple people who researched Berg's life have dismissed those speculations. He definitely had some inappropriate interactions with women. A married friend said that he once got her alone and just started undressing in front of her, causing her to flee the room, though she and her husband retained the friendship. Some women and girls found his presence unsettling, while others considered him entertaining and charming, saying that unlike other ball players, he didn't ogle them. He was, for certain, a divisive person. In general, it seems that he was at turns fun to listen to and tedious to be around. He relied heavily on the same stories from his past, baseball, the trips to Japan, his time in Europe, whenever he was holding court. His eccentricities grew, and he began keeping long lists of everything you can think of, and more than once he started to write his memoirs, but petered out. He became obsessed with secrecy and mystery, but he could be solicitous and kind when someone was in a bad place. He didn't like change of any sort, whether it was Princeton admitting women to the university or the evolution of professional baseball. He had periods of depression when he would not even read his beloved newspapers, but also would not get rid of them. His behavior concerned his brother enough to have him tested for syphilis, which was negative, though unfortunately, there is no evidence that he ever had a mental health evaluation, which might have shed some light on the situation. In 1964, after over 15 years of living with Sam, Mo got kicked out of the house because his brother could not handle living with him anymore. 
he transferred to his sister Ethel's home and lived with her until his death. None of the Berg siblings ever married or had children, and Sam and Ethel openly hated each other, but they did try to help their brother, even if he often made it difficult. The one constant love in Moe's life, even as he aged, was baseball. He could often be found at games, especially around New York, thanks in part to the free lifetime access he was promised when he retired decades earlier. At one point, he was even called upon as a consultant to help determine the viability of a major league team being profitable in Kansas City. But in 1972, he was admitted to the hospital for what ultimately ended up being an aortic aneurysm. On May 29th, he passed away at the age of 70, but not until he reportedly uttered these last words to a nurse. How are the Mets doing today? Mo was cremated and buried in a cemetery outside Newark. However, shortly before she died, Ethel Berg told her brother Sam that she dug up Mo's ashes and taken them with her to Israel. While there, she possibly scattered or buried his ashes, but Sam Berg was never able to find out exactly where. It is a mysterious ending perfectly in line with how Mo Berg lived. Following Mo's death, his brother cooperated with the writing of a biography about him. Then his sister released a competing one. I've already mentioned Davidoff's work. And then there's the movie The Catcher Was a Spy, in which Paul Rudd played Mo, but admitted that he was a hard character to understand. And more recently, there was a documentary called The Spy Behind Home Plate. Many items that belong to him, including the Medal of Freedom, are available to view through the Baseball Hall of Fame's digital collection. I spent ages looking at them when preparing for this episode. He was someone who kept his secrets to himself, carefully choosing what he wanted others to know. He had no problem accepting things from people around him, but had a sometimes difficult personality and crossed the lines of decency and respect. He refused to work after the war, but was proud to impress intellectuals with his baseball knowledge and baseball people with his book knowledge. Perhaps, though, it is because no one truly knew him, the real him inside, that decades later his story still intrigues. Thank you for joining me for this baseball and spy-filled episode of Footnoting History. Visit footnotinghistory.com for further reading suggestions and more info about the podcast, like links to our YouTube channel with captioned episodes and how to support us by becoming a patron. I hope this episode finds you well, and remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes.